from He could keep you six feet down You could hear hell singing that victory song But a funny thing happened The devil thought wrong The devil thought wrong, thought wrong And you came rising right out of that grave I said we were running and my soul got saved Son of God's always been a bit of a red to Capital City Christian Church. We're so glad that you all are here today. Thank you for coming and thank you for worshiping with us. Uh, they gave me a microphone, which is a scary thing, I know. Um, so I thought I'd start out with a joke since we just uh, sang about the devil. Are you ready? Yeah. Do you know why Satan will never wear an Armani suit? Because everybody knows the devil wears Prada. Yes, thank you, thank you. I'm here all week, twice on Sunday. Thank you. All right, before they, before they move me off the stage, I better do what I'm supposed to do, and that is announcements. Uh, I'm going to be highlighting things that are on this card that were in your seat, but we have the extravaganza. It is next Saturday. Um, it is a lot of fun. Uh, I have a lot of fun, just as much as the kids do. I don't know why they keep telling me I can't get the eggs, but that's okay. Um, 
I do want to let you know we signed up uh, our two grandchildren. And when we got the, the recognition that we had signed up, it said, uh, the, the first date said, see on April 16th. Uh, no, it will be April 1st. That was just a, an error. Uh, if you show up for April 16th, there will be no ex extravaganza. Next week, next, next week, Saturday. Also, we have a very, very special event on April 7th from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. here at the church. This is a very experiential opportunity for you, your family, your friends that discusses what you, you basically walk through that, that Friday where Jesus experienced. And there's going to be different stations set up throughout the church. Very powerful, very meaningful experience. I would encourage you to come and have that opportunity to be here to reflect on that Good Friday experience. It is it's amazing um, what, what witnessing that with you and your family can do to help you grow spiritually. And then we also want to talk about Easter Sunday, two weeks from today. We'll have three services. There will be no, um, there'll be no um, adult fellowships on that morning. Uh, services will be at 8, 9.30, and 11. Uh, we all know that Easter is a time when it's prime for somebody who would be willing to come to church, maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time. What we want to do is make it uh, is, is friendly and easy for them to be able to come in and worship. So we ask a few things. Come early to the earliest service that you can. Park a little bit further away from the church to allow those who are visiting to have a little bit easier access to the church. Um, we're excited about that. Not just not just about the opportunity for people to, to come, but imagine them coming for the first time and being able to experience the presence and the love and the excitement of the resurrection of Jesus. All right, we talked a little bit about the devil. What do you think the devil looks like? Have you ever thought about that? I wonder what the devil looks like, right? So we have a few pictures to see what your thought are. Here's, here's one. What do you think of this? Huh? Is, that, is it kind of... Uh, uh, picture of who what he might look like how about this next one the devil in the movies from the passion of the christ mm, very sinister right uh this next one is the one i actually think he looks like <coughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yep yep and how about one more dark figure right dark figure we know in scripture that we hear this, resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? But prior to this, these words is a very important aspect of the scripture. It says, submit to God, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. We were never meant to fight the devil on our own, never meant to fight evil on our own. But if we submit to God first, then we can resist the devil and he will flee. I had a friend who used to say it this way. He says, when the devil comes and knocks on my door, I just look to Jesus and say, hey, would you get that for me? Today we're going to hear a message that's more of a contemporary message that basically says, not today. Not today, Satan. Not today. Watch this video. Thank you. 
Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that you're in the room. We pray that you help us to sense your presence. And we pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Morning. Guys, some of the stories in the Bible really do sound weird. Now, if you've grown up in the church like I have, you forget how weird they are to people who haven't heard them a few dozen times. And the story we're going to look at this morning is one of the weird ones. Wild, weird story, at least to people who aren't used to the wild, weird stories of the Bible. And when they read it, they're kind of like, really? Do you actually think that happened literally? Do you think it happened that way? Look at all the head scratchers in it. It's a story of a skirmish between this God-man, Jesus, and this supernatural being they called Satan. According to the Jesus stories of the New Testament, Jesus is young, maybe 30 or so, just kicking off his ministry on earth, and he's kind of tossed into this cage match with the devil, Lucifer, Prince of Darkness, Beelzebul, Mephistopheles, you know, the, the guy that we often picture with red skin and teeth like a vampire and horns, serpent-like tail, and for some reason holding a pitchfork, right? Anyway, the prologue to the story is kind of cool. Weird, too, but it's cool. Jesus kind of kicks off his ministry by going to the Jordan River where his cousin, John, is baptizing people. And John is like, you want me to baptize you, Jesus? Seriously? And Jesus says, absolutely. It's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness, whatever that means. But that's not the weirdest part, you know. It is strange, the only guy who ever who didn't need baptism, getting baptized. The weirdest part is what happens next. When Jesus comes out of the water, they see this bird, this dove, coming down out of the sky, and it actually lands on Jesus, it says. And to them, it was kind of like God entering into the story. And then they hear this voice from heaven, and you got to remember, they didn't have sound systems back then. They hear this voice out of the sky, and it says, this is my son, this God-man, and he's perfect. So they don't just sense God's presence. It's almost like God gives them something to see and something to hear as God the Father affirms Jesus the Son. And here's what's weirder yet. This is weird on steroids. Right after the big G, God affirms Jesus, it says God, the Spirit of God this time, pushes Jesus out alone into some remote place for this cage match with Satan. Perfect dad, we think, pushes his kid into a showdown with his archenemy. But first he ties his kid's hands behind his back. What's with that? I mean, doesn't the Bible say, for God himself cannot be tempted by evil and he tempts no one? It's right there, right? That was written by James, one of Jesus' brothers. So what's going on here? Just kind of a loophole. I mean, God sends Jesus, the Son of God, to be tempted. I guess he's not the one actually doing the tempting. And at least for a moment in time, Jesus is not just God, 
He is the God-man. Does that mean at least when he's here in a body like us, Jesus the man-God can be tempted just like we are? I guess so. And God sends Jesus out alone. It's always harder to withstand temptation alone, isn't it? And first, Jesus fasts for 40 days. I'm telling you guys, after 40 days, I'd eat my kids, right? (laughs) Not my grandkids, but my kids are ornery. So God kind of ties his son's hands behind his back for this showdown with, do you believe in a literal devil? Satan, Prince of Darkness, Lucifer, Beelzebub, Mephistopheles, Do you think there's a real devil or do you think he's a symbol for evil? Maybe even the invention of pre-scientific minds to explain the brokenness of our world. And when you hear the word Satan, you picture something like this? Red skin, teeth like a vampire, horns, snake-like tail, holding a pitchfork like some farmer. And then Matthew and Luke report three temptations, kind of. They're called temptations, although two of them don't seem that bad, and one of them doesn't seem tempting. Here they are. Temptation number one. Satan says, if you really are the Son of God, how about turning these stones into bread? Why not? Son of God, right? This is the guy who's going to turn water into wine and feed a crowd with a McDonald's Happy Meal. Jesus has fasted for 40 days, so he's really, really hungry. He's got the power. What's it going to hurt? So why not? Jesus flat out refuses. He quotes Scripture and says people need more than food to live, right? And that's true. They need the Word of God. But tough fried bologna, egg, and cheese from five, five store can't hurt, right? Temptation number two, and it doesn't sound that bad either, really. We don't know how, but it says the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, which is high, and he said, if you're the Son of God, jump. Because the Scriptures say he orders his angels to protect you, and they'll hold you with their hands to keep you from striking a a foot against the stone. Why not? I mean, the devil is like, if that dove really was God's spirit, and that voice really was the voice of God, prove it. Prove yourself, maybe to you. Prove yourself to me. Maybe even it goes further than that. Maybe the devil is kind of like, why not prove yourself to all of them, to everybody? And I kind of like Satan's suggestion. I think it would have been cool to watch Jesus jump off the pinnacle of the temple. I mean, all the people are gathered around right at the bottom yelling him, jump, jump, because we're weird like that. And then they gasped as he actually plummets to the ground, and right before he gets there, he kind of floats. I mean, this is a couple of millennia before bungee cords. And he just stops, steps onto the ground. What an entrance. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you love to have seen Jesus do something like just to shut up the doubters? But Jesus quotes Scripture again. He says, don't test the Lord your God. But what would it have hurt? And then temptation number three, and this temptation doesn't seem that effective on the surface. 
It says the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain, a mountaintop, and showed him all the nations of the world, their glory. And he says, I'm going to give it all to you. It's all yours if you'll worship me. I don't know, maybe Satan is losing patience. Temptation doesn't seem very subtle, and a lot of temptation is. What's he offering Jesus? Money? Power? What's he saying? I will make it worth your while to compromise. Perhaps. And whatever the temptation was, Jesus is stubborn. He just quotes scripture again. Get out of here, Satan. You must worship only God. Well, we get that. Makes sense. So you've got to wonder. I wonder if there's more to these scenes than meets the eye, if you've got to scratch a little. And I suspect there is. For example, if Jesus really was God in a bod, Maybe it was important for him or for us to see him share in the human experience to prove that he understands us. You think? Book of Hebrews put it like this. It says, our high priest is not one who cannot feel sympathy for our weaknesses. He can. You know why? We have a high priest who was tempted in every way that we are, except he didn't sin. He understands how tough the temptation is that you face and I face. But he didn't sin. In fact, in one way, he understands temptation better than we do. You know why? Because I have never battled temptation to the end. I've always quit somewhere along the way. So have you. We've all succumbed. So none of us have tasted the fullness of temptation like Jesus did. So he gets us. But this encounter with a literal devil, really? And some of you guys may be like, a lot of people out there are kind of like, isn't it naive to believe in a literal devil? Isn't it more likely that Satan is just some personification of evil, the symbol of evil? Do you actually expect a modern to take this story literally? And I'm like, yeah. I wish you would take it literally. In fact, I think it's naive if you don't take it literally. Now, I'm not talking about some cartoonish figure with red skin, teeth like a vampire, horns, a snake-like tail, holding a pitchfork. In fact, in one place the Bible says Satan can appear as an angel of light. That would confuse people, wouldn't it? I love the line from The Usual Suspects. Now, the line actually goes way back before the movie. But it's this line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And he's fooled a lot with that one. And I also found this one, this is kind of interesting, the second greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he's the good guy. And guys, he's got a lot of people fooled. And there are people who believe both these lies. See, a lot of people today don't connect our issues, our messes, our problems with temptation and sin. They reject the notions of temptation and sin. Some of what we used to call sin, we argue, isn't anymore. Our notions were unsophisticated and archaic, they think. And a lot of the other issues that we used to call a struggle with sin, well, now you need a therapist, not a preacher, right? And some people are like, if you give people enough therapy and you give people enough education, re-education, if we could just break those archaic moralisms, this whole world would be a better place right? 
How naive is that? To deny the concept of sin, to pretend that there is no prince of darkness, it seems like the smarter people get, the meaner they get. The more sophisticated people get, the more abstruse and absurd their moral systems become. The doctrines of sin and temptation, the doctrines of a devil and his demons, are not naive. Make a whole lot more sense than the alternatives that they're trying to foist on us. Because you know what temptation feels like. You've felt it. You sense that there are evil forces at work in this world. How else do you explain the chaos and the evil that you see? Come on. And maybe the temptations themselves are really not so weird. Temptation number one. Use your power to feed yourself, Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, turn these rocks into banana nut muffins. Right? But did you know that Jesus never used his power for himself? He could have. He could feed himself, heal himself, protect himself. But he never did. Because Jesus came to serve, right? Not to be served, even by himself. Or maybe the temptation goes further than that. Do you think Jesus was ever tempted simply to give people like us what we wanted, what we asked for physically. I know, he healed a few and he fed a few to show them that he could and to show them that someday he will. But Jesus did not come here that time to end hunger on earth, to end sickness and death on earth. Yet he came for a purpose way bigger than that, guys. Can you imagine the temptation that Jesus would continue to face? Come on, Jesus. Give us what we want. If you're God, feed us. If you're God, heal us. We'll follow you to the ends of the earth. In fact, that's what we still ask him to do. Why not? And I wouldn't mind a God who'd make my life easier. Would you? A God who would make sure my checkbook is always full, my cupboards are never empty, my body never aches, never broke, never wears out. That's what you pray for, right? Because that's what we would do if we were God. Aren't you glad we're not God? And then in temptation, just jump, Jesus, dazzle them. They'll believe in you, dazzle them. Make them believe in you, Jesus. I could imagine all the times when Jesus could have made them believe in him. Wouldn't it be fun if he simply turned some of the doubters into toads? At least for a while. He could have dazzled them with his power. Whenever they asked him to prove himself, which they did, he could have. If he really was the son of God, he could have tweaked their minds so that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt who he really was. If you'd done a little of that, it'd make my job a lot easier when I try to show people Jesus was the Son of God. Sometimes I wish, sometimes I suspect you wish that Jesus had showed a little less restraint, that he'd been a whole lot more forceful with himself. In fact, some of you guys, some of us still pray for that, right? Have you ever prayed that God would work a miracle to shut up your doubts? Haven't you ever thought it would be nice if God would simply overwhelm you? Sometimes, sometimes God is so quiet, so shy that it's maddening. 
We wish he was a little more forceful, right? And haven't you prayed for someone who is not a Jesus follower yet? You ache for them to get right with God. And so you're like, God, work a miracle, please. Take the fuzz out of their brains. God, we've been praying for him for years, for decades maybe. Just do something to make him believe in you. I'll bet most of you Jesus followers have prayed those prayers, and I'll bet if you're not a Jesus follower, somebody has been praying that prayer for you. And God's quiet, maddeningly so sometimes, on purpose. And this third temptation, maybe this third temptation is way stronger to Jesus than it looks like to us. Maybe. Maybe Jesus is telling, or Satan is telling Jesus something like this. Look at him, Jesus. All those people that you seem to love for some crazy reason. All of these people are under the heel of my boot, says Satan. These are the ones you came for? These are the ones you came to save? How about this? I will trade them all for you. I'll give them all to you, all of them. It's more than you're going to get your way. And it won't require their mockery and it won't require their cross. All you have to do is humiliate yourself to me and they're all yours. Every one of them beats dying. I'll trade them all for you, Jesus. Hmm. Would you go to hell for your kids? For everyone you love? Go ahead, Jesus. Take away their pain. Establish your kingdom. Spare them from me. You can accomplish everything that God sent you to do and more without drinking that cup that your dad's going to force you to drink. How about it, Jesus? I don't know. Maybe it was something like that. Before I take it one step further, I want to just step back and think about what this weird story teaches us about the temptations we face. Because you're fighting them. And you're going to fight them till the day you die, whether you admit it or not, because it's part of doing life in this world, right? So, piece number one. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted, and Jesus didn't sin. You know what that means? It means that temptation is not sin. The temptation is not the sin. You're going to be tempted. The temptation is not the sin. The sin comes when you give in. Martin Luther you ever heard of Martin Luther? He kind of put it like this. He says, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. <laughs> you cannot keep the tempter from suggesting thoughts that you shouldn't be thinking, but you can choose not to dwell on them. The Apostle Paul put it like this. He says, the temptations in your life are no different than those others experience. You're not alone. We're all there. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand if you trust him. So that when you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. If you want to endure. James had it right. It's not just a matter of your being tough. It's a matter of your trusting God, isn't it? You see, you have never been forced to sin. At some point, you gave in because your sin is stronger than you are. But your sin is not stronger than he is. Do you get that? 
Temptation is not sin. Sin is when you give in to it. Piece two. Don't fight temptation stupidly, which is what we usually do. I know God the Father kind of ties Jesus' hands behind his back, maybe to make the fight fairer, I don't know. He fasted for 40 days first, which probably helped him to focus on God, but it also made him weak, really, really hungry, and probably physically weak. Temptation is harder to fight when you're weak. And Jesus faced it alone. We're not supposed to fight temptation alone. We're stronger together, smarter together, more faithful together than we can be alone. It's one reason God wants us to stay connected. There's a guy who used to be the smartest guy in the world. He put it like this. He says, two are better than one. They have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity on anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, two lie down together. They'll, if they lie down together, they're going to keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And here it is. But one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Which says, don't fight these battles alone. And then Jesus pulls out the big gun gun that you've got pulls out scripture Jesus knows what it says he knows its power and he uses it guys without scripture you're going to try to convince yourself that what you want to do isn't bad huh. the world that you live in is going to tell you that what you want to do isn't bad at all the tempter is going to tell you that what God wants for you is wrong for you what you want for you is right for you Scripture is that anchor. Knowing Scripture, using Scripture will keep your mind unmuddled because none of us is strong enough to fight temptation alone. If you lean on God and His Word, you can win. Jesus leaned on the Word. Don't fight temptation stupidly on your own. Fight smart. Piece three. Understand that most, not all, but most temptation is subtle. Most temptation is just a twist of that which is good. So if you think hard enough and try hard enough, rationalize effectively enough, you can justify just about anything you want to do. It doesn't sound so bad. We try to live on that line between good and evil. We want to get as close to that line as we can without going over. How far can I go without incurring God's wrath? We just tiptoe towards sin. If we just live just across the line, we can usually live with ourselves. Why not? I can still love God. I can still honor God and do life my way, right? Now, sometimes we are tempted to do things we know are just flat out wrong. In fact, I think it's getting wilder out there. There are people out there trying to convince you that things that you know are wrong aren't wrong. They'll tell you. It's almost like for some, good is bad and bad is good. If you try hard enough. And there are people in our world right now that celebrate sin, and they're trying to get you to celebrate sin. Don't do that. They're going to tell you, follow your heart. If you don't love her anymore, follow your heart. No. Follow your heart. If you don't like the way God made you, follow your heart. No. Our hearts are messed up, guys. 
If it's you, what you want, do it. If it's what you feel, do it. You be you. Don't let anybody tell you how to be you. Not even God. No. Maybe my creator God is wiser than my heart. Maybe God knows better than my heart. You think? But for the most part, the most insidious temptations for us are subtle. They're not tempting us to pursue something that we know is obviously bad. They just tempt us to pursue good things badly. More often, we want, to, we want some lesser good at the expense of some greater good. I want to be happy. That's good. Even if it means compromising my holiness, which is bigger than my happiness. Sometimes, guys, we want something that is good more than we want God. Sometimes we get annoyed at God because he gets in the way of our pursuit of some lesser good. Do you get that? Any of you guys ever been tempted to put your children in front of God? It's wrong. You ever give in to that temptation? Any of you guys ever been tempted to put your spouse or your job ahead of your obedience to God? You ever given in to that temptation? It's called idolatry. Have you ever been tempted to put your pleasure or your happiness ahead of your holiness? Telling yourself, but God wants me to be happy or some other such blasphemy. Have you ever prayed for God to fix something for you or to give you something so you go to church and you read the Bible and you pray and he still doesn't give you that thing so you push God away because the thing you want is more important than God to you? Guys, anything more important to us than God can become a demonic force and it can ruin your life. Do you get that? At least your life with God which is way more important than your physical life. Piece four, last piece before I wrap this thing up. I think the tempter uses two powerful weapons against every single one of us. He uses temptation to get you to fall, and he uses accusation after you fall. Temptation and accusation. He entices you to do what's wrong, whether you admit it's wrong or not. And then when you sin, he crushes you with guilt and shame. We felt both. It's kind of like a one-two punch, right? Go ahead, do it. It'll be okay. In fact, you'd be stupid not to, right? God's still going to accept you. And if he doesn't accept you, he's not much of a God, right? And then once you do it, Satan is like, what a failure you are. How could God ever accept a person like you? You sin the same sins over and over and over again. How far do you think grace goes? You call yourself a Jesus follower? Really? Ever been there, felt those? By the way, both the temptation and the accusation are lies. Lies that are so easy for us to accept. Let me wrap this up. Guys, I don't know exactly what Jesus struggled with most in these temptations. I'm not sure whether the war was over how Jesus would relate to God the Father or whether it was about what kind of a Messiah he was supposed to be for us. But whatever the heart of the struggle was, I know this. 
Satan was trying to get Jesus to do something other than God's will, whatever the cost. It doesn't look to me like Satan was trying to stop Jesus from being the Messiah. I think he was just trying to alter what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. And what he tempts him with doesn't sound so bad. In fact, I think most of us would prefer Satan's Messiah to God's Messiah. Most of us would prefer a Messiah who'd keep food in our stomachs and money in our checkbooks and mend our bodies and who would make our world a safer, fairer place, right? Most of us would prefer a Messiah who'd show less restraint. We get tired of our doubts. We get tired of a Messiah who refuses to prove himself to us, who refuses to take the little tests that we make for him, who refuses to overwhelm or terrify the people around us who continue to mock him. We want a thundering Messiah, not one who is restrained, who sometimes seems so weak. See, I suspect it was really tempting for Jesus to be the kind of Messiah we prefer. How easy it would have been for him to bribe us to follow him. Just keep our checkbooks, our cupboards full, keep our bodies whole. We'll follow him anywhere. And if Jesus really was God, and if Jesus really loved us, that kind of stuff should be easy for him, right? I wonder if it's hard for him sometimes not to give us just what we want. It would have been so easy for him to compel us to follow him, to have such power, and not use it in the face of such impudence, even today. To exercise such restraint in the face of such irreverence and disrespect, still today. He must have simply wanted to dazzle them with his power or overwhelm them, to silence their mindless contempt. He must have been tempted to reach into their minds and just show them who he really was, maybe still today. But God isn't interested in mindless obedience. He's not interested in clouds, crowds clamoring for the next handout. He wants love. And love can't be bought. And love can't be forced. That, I think, is why not. That's why he simply wouldn't turn the stones into bread. That's, I think, why he refused to step off the temple tower and dazzle them. He's not interested simply in our obedience. He wants our love. And there's another piece, and maybe this piece is the hardest of all for Jesus. You see, what I really need, what you really need most of all, is not more security in this world, not less disease, more money, more safety, more equity. What I need most requires a cross. What you need most requires a cross. What you need most is not food in your cupboards, money in your wallets, God's touch on your body. What you need most requires a cross. What you need most is forgiveness. What you need more than anything else is peace with your Creator. What you need more than anything else is salvation for your souls. And that takes a cross. Love and forgiveness. Love and forgiveness so Jesus would not compromise. 
Jesus would not take an easier way. He didn't walk the edge, trying to do what God called him to do some easier way. He determined he would do God's will, God's way, whatever the cost. Were you? We'll never be wiser than God. We'll never be better than God. You'll only find all that God wants for you by doing God's will, God's way, whatever the cost, right? Let's pray together. Father, we look at these temptations and it ought to take our breath away. How amazing you are. What your son went through to save us when there were so many easier ways we think. Give us the wisdom to accept your sacrifice for us. Give us the wisdom to stand strong in the face of temptation by relying on you. Because we want to reach the end with you. We want to drag as many with us as we can. We love you dearly. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.
you guys have a seat for a second? So we just come to the Father again and again and again because of the need that we have in our life. When Doc was talking about it is, I know what it's like to be understanding what God's Word is and continue to ignore it. I have been there, and I, I, I say that with all shame, that I hear God's Word and say, nah, I don't want to do that because there's another thing that I wanted to do way more. And this change that can occur in our lives is when we finally say, I, I'm going to run to the Father. To turn immediately and run back to the Father and ask Him for what we need to be able to, to handle anything that comes our way. Can we, let's pray together right now for that very thing. God, we know that there's temptation that's occurring right now in this room and all the things that we've been brought, have been brought forth uh, today. Maybe something is happening right now in the, in the hearts of the people that are in this room. There literally is no judgment up here. It's all, it's all coming from a place outside of us, an external thing that it just makes us feel shameful. It makes us feel less than. So God, I, I ask that you will bind any work of Satan that, that is happening right now in these very moments. And with these words that I'm saying before you, Father, they're not coming from my power, they're from yours. The power of Jesus' name, Father, is, is one that can shift and change anything, and we're expecting that right now. The people that are in this room that are crying out, the people that are online that are crying out to you and asking for your help to handle anything, God, they're asking for you to be able to do something in their lives, and I'm asking for the same thing. God, help us to run to you, to use your word, to know it so well, Father, that it is imprinted on our heart, then it comes out in the moments when we need it most. And all we are, Father, are yours. And when people see us, all they see is you. Father, we pray each of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come into a time where we're going to commune together as a family. We're going to remember what Jesus Christ has done. So when we go to the tables in a few moments, it can really feel like something that you do all the time. And I understand how tough that is sometimes. But this is on you. Don't be tempted to, to pull away from anything else. This is a moment that you get to have with Jesus Christ. And remember what he has done. It's when you go to the table and you take the bread and the juice. Don't view it as bread and juice that you have to kind of take together. View it specifically as an element of what Jesus has done, as something wonderful that Jesus has done. And that sacrifice is represented in the bread and the juice as his body and his blood. If this place is your home and you want to give an offering, you can do that at each of the tables as well. There's a black box there that's marked offering. So give, give freely, give cheerfully. And if there's something outside of your offering that you want to give beyond that, we have a white bucket that something's on your heart today and you want to give beyond your offering. There's that white bucket as well. So go ahead and stand right now. Let's be mindful of what it is he has done. You can remember what, <laughs> you okay? And remember that, again, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us when we do that, okay?
Story. The hero is Jesus Christ. Let's resist the devil, resist this villain. Know that this story is all in Jesus now. I needed rescue, my sin was heavy. The chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter, I was an orphan. Now you call me a citizen of it. Come on. confronted with something out there in just a few moments. It's called temptation, the temptation to do something that God does not want you to do. I want you to make sure that you resist the devil. 
fight the devil, okay, because he's there. And when you go out there, if you want to help out at Easter, I'm, I feel gone now. Right? When you want to help out at Easter, there's these little boards there. Take your name tags and say, I'll help out. Put it right there, okay? Bye-bye, everybody. They keep sending me out there.